Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, what happens next after Andrew Scheer dismisses his chief of staff and communications director? The question will be whether this uh, appeases some of the critics that he faces in his own party. Will the government implement back-to-work legislation to end the CN rail strike? We believe that there is a uh, light at the end of the tunnel and we're going to push them as hard as we can because this is very important from the economy perspective. We also believe in the collective bargaining process, so we're going to uh, make sure that they know how important this is and that they have to continue working towards a solution. And Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland meets this week with the Premier of Saskatchewan. I think what we need to do as a federal government when it comes to the West and when it comes to all our provincial relationships is really listen hard. It's Monday, November 25th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Bill Curry of the Globe and Mail. Good morning, Bill. Hi, Mark. So the big news from the weekend was Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader, dismissing some of his senior advisors. Obviously, I think a lot of people knew some type of shakeup was coming after the election, and here it is, right? Yeah, but uh, the question will be whether this uh, appeases some of the critics that he faces in his own party, and that's going to be the real the real challenge. Uh, there's a lot of second guessers. Anytime the leader doesn't doesn't win, there's going to be some grumbling in the party. And where do things go between now and April when the grassroots are going to have to have their chance to to vote on whether to keep them or not? So, at the moment, there's no. Um, obvious campaign against him by anybody um but that doesn't mean that people are are satisfied we've seen a few interesting things over the last few days there were some some former conservative staffers who had said that this should be the last time the party runs without um a uh, stronger position in their view on some of these so, uh, social issues um like having a uh, leader who was comfortable marching in a gay pride, for instance, uh, was something that they said that uh, should be in place the next time. And I thought it was significant to see Rona Ambrose, a former interim leader, uh, side with those former staffers who were making that point. So he's getting some criticism from people who want the next conservative leader, whether that's Mr. Shear or somebody else, to be more... Um, Uh, progressive in their view on some of these social issues like abortion and gay rights. And then at the same time, he's getting some pushback from the other end of the party, which is the the Campaign Life Coalition, some of the uh, more social conservative wing of the party that had supported him uh, towards the end of the leadership race, aren't too thrilled with the positions that he took. So he's kind of getting squeezed on on both sides, and it's going to be hard for him. He was kind of like a compromise candidate, if, if people remember, was uh, numerous ballots before yeah. he emerged as the, as the winner in 2017. So he didn't come to the leadership with a core base of support of all the various factions that form the Conservative Party. So keeping some kind of support together will be pretty challenging. And, and the other thing, too, is he didn't name any replacements for these staffers as, as chief of staff or director of communications, only an interim place, uh, replacement. So uh, the challenge is: Can you attract somebody uh, of uh, you know who is going to be an impressive hire to these jobs when there's no guarantee you're still going to have those 
uh, you're still going to be the leader post-April. So yeah, that's an interesting that's point. Good. Let's turn to the CN rail strike bill, and uh, do you think the government is going to, at some point, consider back-to-work legislation? There's been a lot of pressure from different parts of the country that have been affected by this work stoppage. Yeah, unless there's a resolution soon, this is shaping up to be uh, the, the big story, if not uh, the only story this week uh, politically, because of the impact this is having on so many sectors. And we're in this weird scenario where, unlike in 2015 after that election, uh, the government is taking longer to get the House back and get Cabinet uh, set up. So this week there's not a whole lot happening uh, at the moment in terms of the government's announced agenda. And they don't aren't scheduled to sit until the next Thursday, which is the 5th. So... Um, if this if this uh, strike drags on and we start to see you know seniors' homes without propane and farmers across the country uh, having their grain spoiled because of uh, a lack of uh, energy, there's going to be uh, you know a lot of criticism on the government that they didn't recall the house sooner uh, because it is up to the prime minister to recall the house any time. Um, the flip side you hear from the government people is that. Um, you know, back-to-work legislation is not a quick fix, especially in a minority parliament. I thought it was interesting. We do actually have an example of how quick this could be done because in uh, late 2018, we had back-to-work legislation on the Canada Post dispute. And I was actually surprised at how quick that went through looking back, even though the NDP opposed that just as they opposed back-to-work legislation in the CN case. Um, So... That has an effect in that you can't have unanimous support in the House to move things along faster. But even then, the House was able to pass the bill in two days, and then the Senate sat on a Saturday, allowing that to pass in two days. So within less than a week, the House of Commons could, in in theory, pass back-to-work legislation. So that kind of gives people an idea of how long this would take if they choose to go down this route. Uh, Mark Garneau, the transport minister, doesn't want to talk about that, but... And there is only seven days scheduled to sit once they, they come back on the 5th, which is a Thursday. So it would be the Thursday, the Friday, and the full week there. And they want to deal with the Speaker's election and the throne speech, debate on the throne speech, uh, get a bill in the House that will get things moving on the tax that they've promised. So those are the things they would like to do with that short little window. But uh, events might override that. Something else to watch for in the days ahead. It looks like Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland is going to be meeting with Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe. And this looks like one of the first items on her to-do list in this new role she has as Intergovernmental Affairs Minister. uh, And uh, where basically she's responsible for national unity in addressing some of the uh, issues that have fueled Western separation sentiment in the last few months. Uh, what do you think will happen at that meeting, given that uh, there's already been a me- recent meeting between Scott Moe and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that, from Moe's perspective, didn't go well? Right. Well, uh, I mean, Christopher Freeland has said that her initial uh, efforts on this assignment is just to listen. So I doubt she's going to have any major announcements. I think her goal politically would be to just kind of lower the temperature and uh, I think a success would be if Mo is less critical after that meeting than he was after the uh, Trudeau meeting. I don't think she's ever going to convince Jason Kenney in Alberta or Scott Mo in Saskatchewan to be big fans of the Trudeau government. But I think it's just about uh, playing defense on that file and not making it any worse. Um, but I think there would be uh, policy issues as well that are on the table. 
And both Scott Moe and Jason Kenney have put things on the agenda that I think could be reasonable for this federal government. Um, top of the list is getting Trans Mountain approved. Well, you know they're, they're pushing on an open door there. This this government has has bought the pipeline. They they want to see it built, so that's going to go ahead. Uh, one of the other issues where there could be some agreement is this uh, idea of a fiscal stabilization fund and changing that. It hasn't got a whole lot of attention, this program. It's kind of an offshoot of the equalization program, and it's designed to step in when a province has had a really sharp drop in their GDP. But the issue is it's the formula is based on per capita, and there's a cap uh, per person. So uh, Alberta has received this in, in the recent past, but it really hasn't been a whole lot of money. So... I think uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan would like to see that change. And I think there's more chance of a deal on that between Ottawa and those provinces than there would be on a full-scale hmm. equalization revamp. So, right. um, plus, then, they've also said, the federal government has said they're open to uh, changes on how C-69, this resource approval bill, is implemented and that certainly falls short of what Mo and, and Jason Kenney were, were calling for. They just want that bill scrapped. But, um, you know, we'll see where that goes. Yeah. There's, there's, there's an opening. They're not on the same page there, but there's an opening. All right. And before we let you go, Bill, just quickly, uh, I know you wrote about this on the weekend. If, if there was one sort of development out of the, the cabinet that uh, announcement last week that provoked a lot of reaction or maybe uh, rolled eyes or, or skeptical looks or question marks. It was the announcement of the new portfolio of Minister of Middle Class Prosperity. And uh, Mona Fortier, the new minister, uh, wasn't able when asked to define what middle class is in this country. And that uh, sort of reignited the discussion over whether this is a legitimate portfolio. Yeah, certainly the title got, of this uh, portfolio got some criticism on the first day that it was announced. And then Friday, uh, she was booked on a series of interviews across radio and TV programs. And the, the, the strange thing to, to many people watching that program is was it didn't seem like she had a prepared line. I mean, ministers are known to have talking points, prepared lines. But on that question, which should be uh, an obvious question, who is the middle class, she didn't really have a clear answer. She talked about having kids enrolled in hockey and other activities and supporting the lifestyle you want. And it was kind of, uh, uh, you know, there was not a clear response there for that. And and you would think all of the, the staffers that work for the Liberals or anybody associated with Finance Minister Bill Morneau would have anticipated that question because Bill Morneau's been asked it a million times. Uh, he doesn't have a great answer for it either. But... Um, so that's, uh, I think it's going to be a bit of a challenge for the government in that uh, when you hear from the business community, they've never been great fans of Bill Morneau and part of, partly because of the whole small business tax thing that uh, percolated from 2017, 2018, and, and they don't like the deficits. And so they want to see kind of signs of seriousness, of a, of a solid focus on financial matters, fiscal matters from this finance minister and here you have an associate finance minister with a title that, uh, you know, some people say doesn't imply a whole lot of seriousness. So the next step will be when the prime minister delivers the mandate letters to the finance minister and to his associate finance minister, who is Ms. Forge, Ms. Forge, who has this title, is there going to be 
substance to this job? What exactly does a minister of middle-class prosperity do? Does she have specific policy roles, or is this just politics, as a lot of people think? So um, that'll be certainly something to watch over the next few days when we get these mandate letters. All right, Bill. I appreciate your thoughts on all these topics. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. That's Bill Curry of the Globe and Mail. My job uh, is going to be to make sure that we keep as many uh, relationships with the world. Uh, We will have a principal foreign policy. Now, here's what political columnists, commentators, and editorialists are writing about today at globalnews.ca. Matthew Fisher argues Canada's new foreign minister must figure out how to deal with China. Fisher writes... With Christia Freeland keeping the U.S. trade file in addition to her new duties, that should leave François-Philippe Champagne with more time to seriously consider a balanced policy toward China, rather than the lopsided, ardently pro-China policy favoured by the Prime Minister's office and most of the country's leading diplomats and business groups. He should heed polls that suggest Canadians are far less keen on closer ties with Beijing than he and his government are. At National News Watch, Peggy Nash asks if Christia Freeland has been promoted or doomed to fail. Nash writes, It's unclear whether the role of Deputy Prime Minister will be simply ceremonial or more substantive. The role of Deputy Prime Minister doesn't necessarily lead to the top job. In fact, no Deputy Prime Minister has ever gone on to lead the country. Many see Freeland as ambitious and a possible successor to Trudeau. Time will tell if this position favours that aspiration. In the Toronto Star, Chantal Hébert argues Andrew Scheer looks like a politician trying to whistle past the graveyard of his leadership. Hébert writes, Since the election, there has not been a week that has not featured new cracks in the support Scheer needs to survive a vote of party confidence next April. Some of the harshest post-election attacks on his performance have come from the very quarters that ensured his 13th ballot victory two years ago. If a majority of Conservatives decide the party and its leader need to proactively join the social rights mainstream, it is hard to see how Scheer could continue to fit the bill. In an editorial, the Globe and Mail argues the federal government should watch and learn as B.C. becomes a testing ground for Indigenous rights. The Globe writes, British Columbia is about to become the first place in Canada to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. It will give the federal government a chance to see how it works, what it changes, and if those changes are positive or negative. It also provides an opportunity for the government to slow down. The Liberals have promised their own bill, but could use the next few years to study the effects in B.C. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. A much-anticipated court case gets underway today. The federal government is in court challenging the Human Rights Tribunal order to compensate Indigenous children in Canada who were put into a non-Indigenous child welfare system. The case is a high-profile and multi-billion dollar one, and CPAC's Martin Stringer has more. Mark, this case came about in September when the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ordered the federal government to pay up to 50,000 Indigenous children up to $44,000 each for having been, in the tribunal's words, discriminated against and wrongfully removed from their families when they were placed in provincial non-Indigenous child welfare systems. It's just the last step, though, in a court case which goes all the way back to 2007. It was a case brought by the First Nations Child and Caring Societies led by Cindy Blackstock. The Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruled several years ago that the federal government discriminated against these children and they should be compensated. 
The Caring Society, the Assembly of First Nations, and a number of rights organizations and political parties have been arguing that Ottawa is once again showing bad faith, especially by challenging this order. The Federal Indigenous Services Minister, though, will argue that the federal government needs more time to develop a comprehensive way of compensating these people. It is a highly charged court case. It involves principles which go to the heart of the Trudeau government's claim that it wants reconciliation with First Nations, but which Ottawa also says could cost in compensation anywhere between 6 and $8 billion. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will be in private meetings in Ottawa. Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bibeau will be in Regina to take part in the Canadian Western Agribition's burning of the brand. She will also meet with Saskatchewan Minister of Agriculture David Merritt. And Governor General Julie Payette will make an official visit to Lithuania. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, November 25th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.